I think there's this kind of like, what is an artist? What is a scientist? Their ways of knowing are the same. And we have lost some of that material practice. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witz School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to three Witz academics who've engaged in both their research and teaching with the interface between scientific and artistic research. My guests are Dr. Justine Winkies and Joni Brenner, who were both members of the History of Art Department in the Witz School of Arts at the time of this collaborative project, and Prof. Jonah Schoenier from the Witz Evolutionary Sciences Institute. We will be looking at the Art Science Pilot Project, which was initiated at the postgraduate level in the History of Art Department in 2016 and 2018, but I trust the discussion will range much more widely. Jonah's field of specialization at the ESI is Karoo Paleontology, and his research interest is the taxonomy and paleobiology of dinosaurs and basal archosaurs. He brought to this collaboration his existing interests in the use of art and humanities-based practices for the study and development of paleosciences. Justine is an art historian who did her PhD on South African rock art and related history of scientific illustration in the field. She also has a background in archaeological science and archaeobotany. She resigned from the History of Art Department last year to pursue the role of researcher curator at the KwaZulu-Natal Museum in Pietermaritzburg. She remains a research associate connected to the School of Arts. Joni is the principal tutor in the History of Art Department at the Witt School of Arts and is a practicing visual artist. She was a co-author with Elizabeth Burroughs and Coral Nell of the publication Life of Bone, Art Meets Science, which was published in 2011 by Wits University Press. Welcome, Jonah, Justine and Joni. Uh, I resist the temptation to call this the Triple J podcast, but it's a podcast I'm very excited about because we're looking at a very significant collaborative project that the three of you are involved with, which really, in my view, significantly advance the possibilities of art science here at WITS. And really the groundwork for this collaboration was laid with the exhibition Life of Bone, Art Meets Science, which Joni, you were one of the organizers of, together with Coral Nell, Elizabeth Burroughs and Gerard Marx. And I understand that exhibition really came out of discussions in relation to bones. Can you tell us more about it and how that led into the collaboration, which we're going to focus on today? Yeah, I mean, it did come out of a long set of conversations among artists and scientists, but it really started because I had a sabbatical upcoming and I also wanted to have an exhibition of my watercolour paintings, which were of skulls, mostly of the human skull. But I suppose in the year or so running up to the Life of Bone exhibition, which launched in May 2011, I had approached Bernard Zipfel, who is the curator of fossils at the Evolutionary Studies Institute, ESI at WITS. And he had shown me the Taung fossil in their collection. And I'd started making some watercolor paintings also of that skull. So my interest in 
the watercolour paintings of the skull, which was connected to other of my artwork, also then had this new focus on looking at skulls that came from a lot further back, so two and a half million years further back. And I wanted to have this exhibition at the Origin Centre because it's also a museum that had a mandate at the time and maintains that mandate really to try and bring together the very distant past and the contemporary. And you'll see in their museum, they commissioned when they launched that museum uh, several artworks from contemporary artists and all of them artists who were already in some way engaging with science and the archaeological record. So I had sort of started putting this project in place and I had this collaboration with Bernard and therefore more broadly with the ESI and I'd started speaking to other artists. So you did mention Carl Nell, who was one of the artists, and Gerard Marx, who was the other. But it also included several other scientists. So Himmler Sudial, who did a lot of work with DNA and genetic research at WITS, was involved in that project as was uh, Don Johansson with Discovering Lucy and his long collaboration already existing with Carl. And Kopano Ratele was involved in that project. He's become much more known now. And at the time, he had been doing a lot of work with the TRC and I suppose really thinking about the significance of bones and what that means to not have bones of lost and loved ones. So he actually, and Himmler, because she was looking at the genetic DNA testings that were being done on Sarah Bartman and her remains. So they brought in a much more focused and contemporary and South African angle to this project that was looking at broadly the significance of bones. So I had that project was very well supported at the time by Belinda Bazzoli, who was the DVC for research at WITS. WITS was really pushing to bring the disciplines together and to not have these very siloed academic spaces. So she was very supportive of this project because it really was focused on and and aiming to bring together the two disciplines in a novel way. That project happened in 2011 and it did have a a book that accompanied it and in that book there are various extended considerations of these intersections. But actually very close to that time both Justine and Jonah joined the university and Justine the history of art department and Jonah the ESI. Justine brought similar and extended interests into the department that also, I suppose, you know, locked into some of those early initiatives and, and interests that we were exploring in Life of Bone. Before we speak to uh, Justine and Jonah, what were the principal learnings from the exhibition project around overcoming these silos and artists working together with scientists? I remember at the time reading a short article in The New Scientist that was written by Martin Kemp, who's an art historian, really most famous for his work on Leonardo da Vinci, who of course is the artist who didn't see art and science as separated silos at all and operated comfortably in both disciplines. But Martin Kemp had this very simple statement where he said, you know, a lot of people are really interested in art and in science, but find art very difficult to find relevance and find a lot of science very obscure. He had been, I suppose, trying to explore 
why? Why are they so separate? Because I think one of the, you ask what the principal learnings are, is that artists and scientists work in similar ways. They are interested in finding out about the world and in finding ways to know more. And they both draw on visual, I suppose, metaphors to, to make sense of their findings. And even though we now think science is very certain and sure and unambiguous and art is the discipline that carries with it all this uncertainty and ambiguity and exploration of things that are complicated in fact that is true of science absolutely as heisenberg once observed jonah you've the scientist in this group but you actually bring a sort of sympathy if not an interest to arts humanities modes of understanding of investigation do you want to speak about how you got involved? Yeah, I can only speak briefly about that, but I, I should say that Justine is also a scientist. So um, in her publications sort of span span the range from art to science much better than mine do. Um, I, got, I got involved purely because I, I thought it would be interesting to cross some barriers at the university. And, and when I was hired in 2012 and sort of as I matured in the position in 2013, it was clear the university wanted us to build multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary projects. And I thought, what would be the funnest thing I could do? And that's not necessarily like talking to another science department. And I thought, I'll send an email to the people at Fine Arts and ask, would you like to be involved with a project that would mingle an artistic narrative coupled with sort of representational objects and an evolutionary history approach from the science side? And that eventually, through a circuitous route, found its way to Joni and, and Justine, who responded so positively that we built this sort of initiative that we're here to talk about today. Justine, come to you last because, yeah, you really are the transitional figure with, with a foot in the sciences, your background in archaeology, and obviously your work in the discipline of history and art and your general sympathy towards artistics. You were one of the ones who responded most positively to Jonah's reaching out to the arts. Why did you respond so positively? What potential did you see in this? So I think... A lot of it has to do with the context that Joni has already started sketching out. When I came into the department in 2012, into the history of art department, I had just finished my PhD with Anitra Nettleton, who is an art historian. And that PhD for me was a kind of culmination of a lifelong interest in and frustration with the ways in which the educational system is often organized. So these sort of specific routes that you have to choose from fairly early on in many school systems, not all, but, but many, where you have to kind of choose whether you are interested in maths and sciences or whether you want to direct yourself towards something more artistic. And I had been playing around with that in my own educational choices. So I started working in fine arts, which was always a sort of common theme for me. I started moving into other fields, uh, finishing my fine arts degree. I went into archaeology and I actually chose to focus on archaeological science. So archaeology is also a, quite a humanities kind of science. So it also sits really at the cusp of the arts and the sciences in some sense. And I chose to focus on the sciences within that because I, I was just really fascinated by that side of archaeology and specifically the botanical, the sort of question of, of botanical remains and the fragility of those remains and the kind of biological nature of them and the fragmentary nature, this incredible fragility, but also the clarity of their identity and what they can potentially mean in an archaeological context. So 
So after I had that in my experience, I felt a bit schizophrenic and I decided to look for a project that would somehow combine those different things. I sort of headhunted Anitra here because she's sort of in some ways quite a classical art historian, but she also has a range of interests and she was she's very interested in representational practices across many fields, not just artistic ones. And so I started working with her and I devised a project. At the same time, I was very lucky to be employed to do some rock art recording in the Drakensberg um, in KwaZulu-Natal, so it was very serendipitous. I started working in this rock art recording project and at the same time developing my PhD topic, which ended up being a history of representational practices in rock art research and the significance of those practices in relation to the ways we understand the art, the meaning of the art, the production of the art, the consumption of it, and so on. So it became a kind of history of in some ways, a history of scientific illustration, which is kind of a boring way to put it. But I think it really, for me, also highlighted the history of disciplines and the, actually the, the ways in which the disciplines, as we understand them today, are such recent formations. And going back a few hundred years, there was no, this, this distinction is actually so recent, and yet it, it feels so hardwired into the world around us. So all of that was kind of my background. And then I came into the History of Art Department and with Joni, we immediately struck up these interesting conversations that didn't quite, so we had all these sort of connections. They didn't really fit into anything we were actually teaching in History of Art at the time. And so we started imagining ways in which we could actually turn this into a teaching experience and then potentially research and so on beyond that. And so we devised this idea of developing an art and science course and we sort of imagine different ways in which to teach it. Because of course the issue, I'm sure this is something we'll touch on again in the conversation, the issue with art and science is often that everyone talks about, it's quite a buzz thing at the moment, everyone's sort of talking about art and science and it can be quite a superficial set of connections, it can sort of point to something quite generalizing and there are many, many different ways in which it can be interpreted. And Martin Kemp has also spoken about the importance of the need to be quite specific when we're exploring what these connections are. And so Joni and I had this kind of pool of this cloud of potential. We wanted to deepen this thing, but we also wanted to devise something that would be quite specific. And so we thought of a course, a kind of course outline, and we imagined the possibility of working with a botanical framework or a anatomical one, sort of drawing from Joni's interests in bones and body structures. And also archaeology came up. And then, of course, Jonah contacted us and we found this kind of lost email that ended up in our inbox it just became just sort of opened up so we just met with Jonah and we started having these conversations and at the same time we put the course proposal together and we imagined a course that would actually engage with Jonah and his framework and his students I remember so distinctly at the time that we finished Life of Bone which really was focused around the Taung skull which is I don't know it's contested roughly two and a half million years old there was a kind of joking banter around how interesting it would be actually to look a lot further back in time and try and maybe do a project that we might call Life of Stone, but that might go even hundreds of millions of years back into the past. And in fact, it was so fortuitous, Jonah, when your email arrived and Justine arrived, and then suddenly there was this idea that actually maybe we could really look at the dinosaur period. And 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 it did actually help us to, I suppose, make our selections or choices around how to narrow down that course that was evolving. And so the discovery of the email and a conjunction of that email with 
the interests that were already here led to a conversation with Jonah. Exactly. And Jonah, I think, had some sense of the life of Bone Project because of your connections, obviously, at ESI and having heard Bernard speak about the project. And yeah, they really did support it. And the Paleontological Scientific Trust also supported it. So there was a lot of buy-in at the time for putting projects like this into motion onto the map. Yeah. Justine, could you give us an outline of the actual course and the project as it eventually got implemented? So we imagined a course that would be, again, in this kind of quest for something really specific to give students, obviously history of art students, who might find the idea of working in, in a scientific way or engaging with scientific materials and texts and so on quite intimidating. So we wanted to make a very specific project. So we were inspired in that in the object-focused work that we were doing in the department and other projects, in the object biographies project in, in particular. So we imagined a project where they would actually tackle a single object, which could be a fossil or a site, but something very, very specific. And then we also designed the course around the experience of fieldwork, which of course is not necessarily something we think of when we think of art historical practice. But it's certainly very much part of my own experiences and we thought that would be a perfect way to really collaborate in a very hands-on, immersive way with Jonah. So we taught the course twice in 2016 and 2018 in a kind of pilot phase and we designed each course around an intensive fieldwork experience which was collaborative with Jonah and his students. And we took a mixed group of students, so some History of Art students and some of Jonah's students to a range of amazing fossil sites and archaeological sites and various other things that we had the opportunity to see along the way in the Eastern Free State, in the Golden Gate, Clarence and Drosendal areas. And the first field trip, we really just visited sites. I mean, it was kind of a movement through the landscape to see specific features that Jonah already knew about. So a little bit of more of a sightseeing mode. But the second excursion in 2018 was absolutely exceptional in the sense that we had the opportunity to join an active excavation. It just kind of fell into place that we were able to organize the excursion at the same time as Jonah's excavation with his students. So it was even more kind of immersive and really hands-on and very practical. And our students had this incredible experience of being able to see an excavation unfold in front of their eyes and see the kind of creativity of it and the improvisation and the sort of messiness of it as well. Joni, do you want to add anything to that? I think that an excursion well organised and with a focus and an intention can be an incredibly powerful learning experience. And I suppose one of the things that I think the students really grasped or got a lot out of was the relaxedness of the experience. So when you have got four days where you are navigating mountains and rough roads and also cooking and eating together and also finding how you arrange your sleeping arrangements and how you engage with the people who own the accommodation, you have an intimate experience and it unleashes something that enables art students who are a bit nervous about sciences and science students who speak a different language and who have another knowledge and skill set that seems very foreign. And similarly, it enables those students who also 
I think we're a little bit scared of the art students and not quite sure what to make of it and then what to expect, what kinds of conversations or shared spaces might be possible. And I think that what emerged was in some ways completely playful and in other ways very deep learning experiences, very profound questions about the nature of knowing and learning and being and contextualizing the unexpected things that happen when you put artists and scientists together. I think was really extraordinary. I, I think you guys are also selling yourself short on the background that led up to those trips, mm-hmm. where you really drove students to get as much as they could out of each object and talk to the people who had been involved with these objects through the course of their lives and studies and, you know, sometimes 40, 50 year history, mm-hmm. sort of cohabiting a research space with that object. And, and you know, they arrived at the field trip prime with an incredible amount of knowledge. In fact, much better than mine in certain areas in an embarrassing way. So, Again, it was the collaboration between the two departments and really between the three of us that opened that space up that allowed for that. So, for example, walking our students, it was a small group, so we had about five students, walking them down the road to the ESI where you were there, where you opened the doors, where you opened the vaults, where you opened the archives, where students could be in a controlled way, let loose on how many fossils are housed there? Thousands, hundreds of thousands. And to be having that experience of that kind of archive with your kind of expertise and your students, I mean, your students are so articulate and knowledgeable and could answer almost all the questions our students proposed or asked. So it's true that we did prep students and there was lots of hands-on learning and thinking and reading and analysing and summarising and finding research questions and potential projects before we went on that excursion. What kind of readings did you give the art students? Were you expecting them to engage quite meaningfully with paleontology? Or were you wanting them to read Martin Kemp, for instance? What? We did make them read some of Jonah's papers. And uh, I was fascinated by that because when paleoscientists say they described a bone, I mean, that's a PhD. And when our students describe an artwork, it's maybe two pages. <laughs> so the idea of what a description is in the two disciplines is quite different. And we wanted our students to see what a scientific description looked like. And, I mean, they are very difficult to read for humanities people, but not impossible. And you can access them because they also rely on a lot of visual things. They rely on graphs and tables and illustrations and drawings. And they're also then structured in ways that are familiar to us, like abstracts and summaries. And, you know, so there were ways in, but it meant that we had to do quite a lot of um, analysis of the text itself as a way into then knowing more about it. So we did get them to read proper scientific texts and then we got them to read hybrid texts. So lots of Martin Kemp and lots of C.S. Snow who really coined the phrase the two cultures, the problem of the two cultures. And people like Tim Ingold, we also got them to read and he brings together the archaeological, the art, the anthropological and the architectural, which is always the fourth A I always forget. 
We got students to read broadly. And W.J.T. Mitchell as well. Of course, he's written a book called The Last Dinosaur Book. It's more about dinosaurs in popular culture, but it's quite interesting from a sort of visual, visual culture point of view, and it really does tackle the question of dinosaur representation. So the students were quite prepared in their reading before this encounter with the, the fossil archive where you, Jonah, opened the doors to the, the archive. So they were actually prepared. And then they were prepared actually to see the difference between representation and reality and how those things are framed. Yeah, that's right. They were primed for inquiry, basically. And they had a specific task to complete. So in visiting these collections, they had to try and find their own sort of object. So it was quite a directed incursion into these other spaces. And they fell in love with objects with fossil objects and maps and all sorts of things that started to speak about long ago and belonging and, you know, humanities-oriented kinds of questions that they really were very familiar with, but applied in a different context. How did they choose their object and were they able to take the object home with them? Or is it, <laughs> did they just view the object in the archive? What was the dynamics of that? I mean, that's a very interesting question. So obviously the projects were as diverse as the students. So in as much as we tried to keep it sort of very specific and constrained, and I think that worked quite well, that sort of requirement to focus on one thing and then to work within this very specific sort of dinosaur framework, students came up with the most unbelievably diverse uh, responses to that project. So for example, one of our students, Gordon Massey, he chose a fossil in the collection. Its accession number is 4242, which of course reminds us of the novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the response from this supercomputer who churns away for 7.5 million years, I think, at this question of the life, the universe and everything. And, and this computer comes up with the answer 42. So he was quite intrigued by this fossil 4242, but also for other reasons. There was an archival context. We didn't quite know where it had been collected in the landscape. And it was a site that we were going to be visiting on one of the field trips. So he became interested in this object and he became quite attached to the object. And of course, he couldn't just take it home with him. And it wasn't really enough to take a photograph. He kind of wanted something a little bit more. So he had it scanned and 3D printed. And they have quite an amazing facility to scan fossils and to actually have them painted beautifully in this kind of realistic way. So he was able to have his fossil 3D printed and painted and he could take it with him, he could take it home with him, he could take it on the field trip. And part of his project involved returning this copy of the original object to its place in the landscape and trying to figure out where that place was, first of all, sort of working through the archive and then experiencing that landscape and that sort of process of return in the company of Jonah and his students and learning about the kind of layers, the geological layers. It was a very sort of meaningful experience, I think, to do that work with the object present in some form. And then, of course, all the sort of thinking about representation and what a 3D model of an object is in relation to that original object. And of course, a fossil is already a copy of the original creature, etc. So, you know, where, where does the original lie and where does the act of representation kind of begin and end and, and so on? All those sorts of questions that are actually deeply implicated in art history, really. Absolutely. Um, also yeah. the stuff about fragmentation yeah. and information that we don't have, which we then did have with Jonah and his students, so we could piece together a little bit more. Mm. And that I think that is also something that's really shared between the two disciplines, is this thing of being able to piece together. Jonah, how did your students, the 
paleontologists respond to this incursion by the art students? What was the reaction? What was the learning for them? Well, I think we were very lucky. The first year we eased into this, and I had a student at the time who was a graphic artist. I mean, she had come back to do paleo after like designing critters for video games for two years. And so she fit right in very easily. I think it was sort of seamless. And then the second year, my students were a bit freaked out. I, I think, you know, they said things like, oh, when are the art people coming? So the initial sort of assembly of the group, I think it was a it was a bit hard on them, actually. And I guess I didn't take time to assess if it was hard on your students, but I imagine it it would have been. But, and this is true with field trips in general, it may not be like the background of the people you take out. There's some chemistry that happens and either it works or it doesn't. And we're very lucky the second time that everyone got along really, really well. And, and uh, sort of those barriers broke down more or less the first day, I would say. I think the leadership was quite good, if I can say that. But I wonder if it's also the making, because the second trip was very hands-on and everyone had to get stuck in. And I wondered if that also did something to bond or meld it's the really inquiry. True. I mean, I think I would always have a more hands-on thing now in our, in our subsequent iterations, because the first year I felt like I was lecturing to people and finding out what was interesting to the art students. And then only at the end, we had this like great informal discussion around the kitchen table where people were drawing stuff on paper and it really gelled then. But that took like till the end of the trip. And I think the second time we ran this, once people's hands are covered in plaster and mud and they've hiked up a massive hill and they're sweating, yeah, it broke down those barriers much faster. Did you prepare your students by getting them to read texts on artistic representation? Was there was it an equivalent to the preparation that the art students did? I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> I threw them into the deep end of the pool, um, intentionally so, actually. I just want to see how they were going to interact, I think. You know, in many ways, their assignments have already been handed to them. They're part of a course that's designed to pursue a, a specific scientific line of inquiry. And I think this was a, a rider onto that, an interesting experience that, you know, I thought, well, maybe this will change the way they think or lead to a new connection or, you know, potentially lead to, you know, a longer term, maybe faculty development if they themselves came to Witz or another institute and began teaching. I mean, one of the things I was so struck by was how, and I wondered if maybe, even though you didn't prepare your students, Jonah, if this wasn't something very significant for them, because it really struck me how they were able to articulate so clearly and in such user-friendly terms, in such simple language, what they were studying, what the significance of the landscape and the geology was and where the fossils that we were excavating fit into various research projects, what the aims were, what the lineage of that particular fossil was. And I was so amazed that these students could just explain it so clearly to our students and I think that because your discipline is so scientific and so specific and it does use a very learned and acquired language that part of the training that is so brilliant at ESI is that you do train your students to be able to reach a general public. I mean it was one of the things behind the Life of Bone project as well that really became so clear was that here was an exhibition where people who were scientists and artists could find a comfortable and familiar space within that exhibition. So you never had this thing of people saying, oh, I don't go to art exhibitions because they're so alienating, or people saying, oh, I can't go to anything that's too paleontological because I don't understand it. So 
the exhibition, the coexistence of the the artistic, uh, I suppose, ex- investigation and the presence of the skulls and the and the scientific voices, meant that it was for both kinds of people, and that there was also a place where that could merge. And I do think I saw that happening on those field trips with the way that our students felt that they could ask, in inverted commas, stupid questions. And it was never ridiculed by your students who took it as a chance to, I suppose, maybe practice showing how they understood and that they understood. You know, dinosaurs are like a convenient handle. It's like a sort of a stepping off place for people. Certainly if we were doing a quantum physics field trip, it would have been much worse, (laughs) much harder to integrate people. But that book you spoke about, too, I think really showcases showcases that, that concept where like dinosaurs and pop art dinosaurs in scientific art and then dinosaurs from a research standpoint really capture a broader swath of interest. And so they allow you to ask those dumb questions, right? Because they're familiar. And same with skulls. Everyone's looked at a skull. Like we've all done Hamlet. Yeah. And I I think that that there's familiarity there that allows that interaction to take place. Jonna, if you were to do a next iteration of this kind of project, would you do it in exactly the same way from your side with your students? Or would you... Because it does seem to me the relationship is somewhat one way. The art students were learning about paleontology. The art students were going on a field trip together with your students. They were experiencing what paleontologists go through and do on an actual dig. But I'm not sure if there was a similar kind of engagement with the sort of questions of representation that are central to a postgraduate arts education. Definitely part of that is how you assess like the outcomes, right? And I think in science, we were so used to quantifying things. At the end of it, we'll say we did this and number two and number three, and we achieved these objectives. And I think from the art side, quantification may not be so concrete. And so we might think about how do we assess, how do we quantify what the science students got? I certainly think some of it is perspective broadening. And in science, education actually breeds out curiosity. I strongly feel this. And so I think science students, as you said, Joni, are afraid to ask stupid questions as students. And, and uh, you know, th- this trip definitely displayed to them the, the value of asking those fundamental questions and trying to bore down to like the essence of something. Why are we interested in this? What does it actually matter? So, so I do think they got a perspective shift out of this. And I certainly did too. I mean, I remember a number of really fascinating things that people said. One was, you know, we, we have these preparators who take a rock and re- you sort of free the fossil that's been trapped inside it. And one of your students said, oh, well, they create by deleting. They remove rock to create something new. And I thought, well, this, that's kind of out there. Like, that's a non-lateral piece of thinking. And I would never have come to that myself. And so th- those kind of moments, you know, I could write them all down in a journal maybe next time or something like that and reflect on them. But I think those are the moments that allow you to, you know, as, as you mature as a scientist, it's actually much more about communication. In fact, the more people I convince that I'm right by communicating to them in their own language, uh, th- the more I win, uh, essentially, or actually, you know, the more science wins. And so those kind of moments actually teach you how to do that. They teach you about how people think and, and where they may be coming from. So, so I think we got a lot of 
that. One of the sort of quantifiable things that came out of, of these field trips, well, there's two of them that I can think of now, is, is one, I learned how to mix plaster a lot better, thanks to your technique, Joni. And the other thing was that Gordon's project on that small crock that he carried around like a high school baby, yeah, 4242, that provenance information we actually used in a publication subsequently. And if he hadn't dug that up, I, I don't think we would have captured it. And then to answer the second part of your question, will we do it the same? I'd really like to pursue a few of the things we've sort of talked about on these trips. So that is creating a fictional narrative of evolution, interpreting that sort of text-based narrative into uh, more visual art, and then using that visual art to collect scientific data that we can then try to see, do we get to the same narrative or not? And how do we build these things in, in sort of cyclical patterns. And then we've also been talking about integrating drawing classes into a class I teach, Animal Form and Function. So to teach the powers of observation of anatomy, which is what that course is about, by actually getting people to draw it um, and stimulating to them to draw in non-technical ways, I guess I would say. This is journey, as I understand, is something you've been doing with medical students. A little bit. I'm starting to, but I'm so reminded, actually, when, when, when Jonah puts it like that, that there really is observation, so paying attention and really seeing more than you might see in a sort of cursory glance. But then there is also talking about it and saying it. So it's both observation and communication and description, finding the words to say it. I do think that that is another very powerful shared feature of the two disciplines. I think it underpins both in ways that can deepen the learning in both. Yeah, I have been doing a bit of work with medical registrars who are specialising in cytopathology. And I've done this work initially with Justine, and it's growing in different ways, I think. That work also came out of a recognition by the supervisor or cytopathologist who is training these medical registrars who recognized that her students were really struggling in a big portion of their exam, which required them to observe and describe what they could see under the microscope. Then that is really looking at cells. Again, something very abstract and very specific, and that requires a very particular language, but also requires very close observation. And she just said to me she was absolutely clear that the students needed training in visual literacies. And uh, Justine and I, we did a series of workshops with those medical registrars, and almost immediately afterwards, I observed one of Jonah's classes. I think it was that second-year class and now, I mean, it was a huge class, 120 students that each been given a mystery bone and they had to look at this bone and identify it. Where does it come from? Who did it belong to? How do you know those kinds of things just from looking? And one of the things that I think you were complaining about, Jonah, is that you want the students to learn more and know more about that bone by drawing it, yeah. by paying attention to the surface and by using a pencil to make those connections. And at the time, I remember thinking it's so similar to the workshop that Justine and I had just done with the medical registrars, that same use of the visual to know more. So I do think that that is maybe another alternative or extended direction that some of this collaborative work could go in. I suppose it's another fundamental overlap 
between the two disciplines, really that observation and then the description of it. And I mean, I know that uh, Bruce Rubich also at ESI was complaining about how none of the students draw fossils anymore. And then he pulled out a portfolio <laughs> of all of his drawings from decades, decades of looking at fossils through drawing them. And he said, I'm not using my camera to take a snap of these fossils. I'm learning what is exactly going on in this fossil from drawing it. He said, I walk into the labs now, no students are drawing. I say to the students, where are your drawings? And they say, don't ask us to do drawings because we are not artists. And I said to him, well, what did you say to the students? Because he was so cross. And he said, I just say to them, well, then you're not scientists either. And I storm out. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's this kind of like, what is an artist? What is a scientist? Their ways of knowing are the same. And we have lost some of that material practice. What has been something of an obstacle in the art-science relationships that I've seen here at WITS is often the scientists understand the role of the artists to illustrate and perhaps that's the reason why Jonah's email <laughs> just floated around the school for as long as it did, because there's quite a strong objection to being recruited as an illustrator, whereas I think most particularly students coming out of university arts education ha do have some sense that it's a mode of inquiry that they can offer, not just a skill to illustrate results that the scientists have arrived at. Justine, have you encountered this contradictory expectation at all in your work? Absolutely. It comes up in all sorts of different ways. So the idea of artists being a kind of technician in the service of a scientific discipline. In some of my own work, I've worked as a scientific illustrator. So one example is working on illustrations of archaeological seeds. And we played around with this a little bit when we published the work. So it's two papers that I've published with Christine Sievers, who's actually in the archaeology department here at WITS. She's an archaeobotanist. We played around with this a bit because, first of all, I used some of the conventions for doing the drawings, but not all of them. In a way, the drawings were kind of artworks in and of themselves that also did other things, as well as illustrating these seeds with their diagnostic features for identification. But we also put me as the primary author, which Chrissy was also kind of open to. It's quite an interesting kind of position. And this is something that people said, well, why is Justine an author on this paper? Because she just did the illustrations. <laughs> and it's quite a subtle, I mean, we don't, we don't actually say it in the paper, but it was kind of a, a sort of a statement about the role of the image and the role of drawing in the process of understanding and learning to see these objects and identify them and then come to describe them in a kind of precise way. So that's something that I've played around a bit with in my own work, but it is an issue. I mean, I think it's, it's something that we encounter quite a lot. And I think the way we worked in this course was really quite directly geared towards shifting some of those ideas from the art side as well as hopefully from the science side. I was thinking about the idea of also something open-ended. So the idea of an illustration being in the service of a discipline rather than being something that is used to explore something and introducing something with a more open-ended purpose into a, a process where the outcomes are actually quite defined, predetermined in a kind of scientific context, for example. And then the other way around, introducing a specific thing into a, um, a history of art course where the, the outcomes are 
more open-ended, tend to be more open-ended or can be sometimes dangerously open-ended. <laughs> so trying to bring in something really specific there and sort of to flip that around and bring the open-endedness in and the specificity in and crossing those things over each other. A lot of it is our fault, though, because we, when we teach fine art practice or students, we moan at them about making work that's illustrative. So we say that's so illustrative as if it's got no thought or no purpose really other than doing what a camera can do what it erases or bypasses is the cognitive learning that happens when you draw something and that it is actually always an interpretation it's never actually illustrative in this kind of banal unthoughtful way it's always a translation always an interpretation we have the same issue you know <laughs> well we're always saying draw inference draw inference like don't just report because anyone can report a result in a reasonably objective way but it's how you use those results to bring us further a step further or to to synthesize that and make a theory and that's what inference is and it's nice you're having the same problem exactly and the quality of the question and sort of like the how you gather the necessary data to answer it is such a creative enterprise at both ends of the spectrum I've often wondered whether the term, which is bandied around a lot at the moment, art science, isn't a misnomer. And there should be a recognition that there are many different arts, as there are many different sciences. And I wonder if paleontology isn't particularly conducive <laughs> to working with the arts, because paleontology is very much a imaginative reconstruction based on fragments. And one of the pieces that really struck me from the Life of Bone exhibition was Coral Nell's, where he juxtaposes the tone with the piltdown. And I think the easy way to read that is the tone is genuine fossil, the piltdown was a notorious fake, but it reads the other way as well. It's the existence and the effectiveness of the piltdown fake cast doubt on the tone, particularly in paleontology, because the actual evidence is fragmentary. It does call for a great deal of imaginative reconstruction, which in terms of sciences brings it a lot closer to artistic engagement. Except that the uh, scientists' research is tested and tested and tested and tested over and again to eliminate doubt as far as possible. And this is also why I think it's such a competitive field, right? Because every new bit of information can potentially upset the existing apple cart. So the level of rigorous testing to eliminate doubt, I think, is a difference. Surely the parallel, though, is that artists often return to the same thing again and again to try to interpret it in a new light right to try to gather more meaning out of, of something so I, I, yeah i don't think that's necessarily like a stark contrast and certainly the research that i do which is to try to figure out how sets of things are related and to forge connections which we believe are you know biological in nature but that sort of connection isn't just restricted to biology how do you take sets of objects forge connections say these are more similar to each other and these are less similar yeah, that, that's really, um, it's, it's quite subjective, right? And in the quality of your observation and the strength with which you can communicate it to a person who may not, you know, have not spent 20 hours looking at the same fossil, that's really how people judge your work. It's definitely true of art, right? Just to come back to your question about the creativity of dinosaur studies, paleontology, 
I think that's something that I've learned through this experience. So I always assumed that something like archaeology would be a more obvious science through which we can make more obvious connections to the arts and to the humanities more generally because of its kind of focus on people. But in meeting Jonah and kind of talking to Jonah about some of our ideas, I mean, you didn't think we were crazy from the first conversation you actually really listened to us and I could feel that you were listening and that you kind of really thought that these ideas were interesting and I've learned that actually I've learned much more about how creative the work that Jonah and his students and peers do fundamentally so even with the rigor and the kind of concrete and the, the need to be convincing and the need to be absolutely clear and to be able to argue something, there's also a lot of play. There were some things that I thought were crazy, you know, but it wasn't you two. <laughs> the first year we did this project, we took this hike up the side of a cliff on this beautiful farm. And there's these dinosaur footprints there just on the sandstone sort of laid out. And they're amazing. And they tell so many stories, right? You literally could look at an individual print and see the sort of scale pattern on the bottom of the foot. Or you could think about how are we standing here looking at these specific things? Like what are the chance happenings that needed to take place for us to observe this today? And then I turn around thinking about, well, how am I going to try to bridge this gap? And Francis is doing a interpretive sort of dance in these things. Yeah, so one of our students, Francis Labolepsi, yeah, she did a really interesting spontaneous performance piece on these footprints. And one of the other students filmed her. It created this kind of digital file about the reenactment of these footprints in a loop. So it was also about the sort of complex temporality and also the question of digital representation and how that can also shift the way we... And the absence. And the presence. I think you said, Jonah, that fossil footprints are quite low level in your in, in your world, where you really want the bone and the physical, tangible evidence. But when it's just an imprint, it doesn't carry the same significance. But she sort of reenacted the movement of these dinosaurs with her body into these very clearly captured footprints. And I mean, it, it was very playful and also very provocative, thoughtful around how we construct knowledge from things that actually are not there. It was ephemeral, too. I mean, that's the thing. Like, these footprints are exposed, and they're going to erode in 10 years. So, you know, that was one day in the life of that dinosaur. And this was a spontaneous performance that can never be duplicated. So there's lots of, like, visual alliteration there. And, yeah, I thought it was cool. But I thought it was crazy the first time I saw it. <laughs> Turn around, I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> what are we getting into? So, Jonah, would you be open to further collaborations along these lines? Yeah, I mean, these rank as the most enjoyable field trips I've taken, I think. They're really fun and great, you know, conversations over dinner and breakfast and yeah great food and fun and mind expanding so absolutely in fact I would strongly encourage my students even if I'm not a participant to either participate or lead them themselves especially for early career scientists I think to give you a bit of perspective over what like what would other people find interesting like how do you communicate your thoughts and what's the value of what you're doing not just to a very narrow audience but to a broader audience and Justine the effect on the art students? Because Jonah's very eloquent about the effect on his students, particularly the career scientists. The effect on the art students? 
of this engagement? Several students have continued to talk to me about this experience. It seems like they really got a lot out of it. And students in subsequent years have come to me to ask me whether the course was being offered. It seemed like there was really a lot of interest, even though the groups were quite small that we were working with. So I think because it was a new course, it didn't attract sort of dozens of people, but really nice sized groups and it, it was growing. I mean, again, it's like, it's so specific, isn't it? Mm. It's like there's some students who sign up for a history of art postgraduate course and they have got other things in mind. So it takes, I suppose, leaping in to find what is actually being offered and that we make many, many references to artists working in this sort of shared field, artists whose work can be used to deepen the thinking and scientists. And I think it does take a specific kind of student who is interested in the hybrid space but I, I do think that even even if there might have been one or two slightly hesitant students who weren't quite sure what to expect or if this was the right kind of thing for them to be undertaking, I think every student found some kind of way of making this experience meaningful for their own interests. And that is also the joy of postgraduate work, right, where students have already got areas of interests, things that they want to pursue, questions that they want to ask and can make connections and apply different experiences, bring them back to their own experiences. And you can see that in all the different objects and projects that the students pursued and the different kinds of um, engagements that they had with the science students, the kinds of questions they asked were all quite personally driven, but connected into the parameters that we'd set out. I have to say I was really impressed with the range of responses we got with something that was quite challenging, I think, which so we tried to make it very specific, but it was very, remained quite challenging and students really rose to that occasion. The sort of final essays, etc., were of various stages of development, but the ideas that students came up with in response to this brief was incredible, really, really inspiring. I'm also thinking of one of our students who took the work she did on the course into a master's project, Nadia York, who's doing a master's in history of art. Her project is about Schaplatz, which is a site that we went to with Jonah and his students in the first field trip. And it was a really interesting, quite different from the other sites we went to on that trip. Because first of all, it's primarily a rock art site. So rock paintings, Bushman rock paintings from sort of the last few hundred, maybe few thousand years. So we went there primarily to see the rock paintings. But Nadia became very interested in a dinosaur footprint that just happens to be on a rock kind of inside this rock shelter. She brought materials to make a kind of an imprint with a kind of algae, alginate material. And it took a long time to set. So that meant that it took the whole day. In fact, we had to come back the next day to get the thing because it still wasn't dry by the time the sun went down. But it meant that we spent the whole day and that was the final day of the trip, I think. So it was a bit open-ended. We didn't have anywhere else to be. There were other things we could have gone to, but we ended up, all of us, having to stay at this one place. And we really explored the landscape, the vicinity, and there are these interesting rock engravings just up from the rock shelter that nobody's really recorded. Before. There's also a question about who made them and how old they are. And then various other incredible, huge rock shelters up the valley with other kinds of archaeology and of course the geology which is always so visible in that part of the country. So Schaplatz is just outside of Clarence. It's a public rock art site and it was just it was an amazing experience. The discussions and the kind of a little level of boredom that set in as well where we waded by the river but the discussions that came up and then the search for another dinosaur footprint that was supposed to be in the ceiling of this rock shelter but we could not find it. We had this article 
from the Digging Stick, which is a popular archaeology publication that said there was a second dinosaur footprint. And we gazed at this ceiling of this rock shelter the entire day and we couldn't find it. And we sent, I think, on this very low cell phone reception, we managed to get an email to a Canadian scholar, a geologist who has an interest in rock paintings who wrote an article about this and we Joni managed to get just this tiny fragment of cellular reception to send an email to this guy in Canada <laughs> and you know different time zone he managed to get the response to us just as the sun was going down literally we can't find this footprint just tell us where this is and he said, oh, I wrote about that years ago. And when I wrote that article, it must have been 20 years ago. And I think it's here and it's there. Take two steps to the left, two to the right. And we found it. And we took, I think, what has to be the first group selfie with dinosaur footprints. <laughs> and sent it to him. So it just brought this scholar who was really at the end of his career, who had kind of, I think he was had retired. was about to catch a plane. And he said, this came in and he was so excited that there were still people following up research on the site that he had put some things in place for. And it was just such an amazing way to think about these um, intellectual lineages. So not only the time, temporal, kind of lineages, but also this community of practice, ways of looking and ways of communicating that are so different and instantaneous now. And we were there in a site where things had survived millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. I mean, that was another kind of humanities focus, right? Mm -hmm. To bring back this way of thinking about deep time through narrative, really. In, in that place, it's just, a, it's just one or two lines on our data set. Like, we have this big archive of all the sites, and it's one line, and it's just a throwaway piece of Excel data. And so Nadia's project kind of brought all of that together, this sort of complex temporality that can exist in one place and that you can experience just by being in one kind of quite small space. You can experience all these, these different layers and different kind of timescales. I think that's a very good point for us to end. Jonah, Justine, Joni? Thank you very much. I think it's a really fascinating discussion. And hopefully, even though you're going in different directions, this impetus can continue. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guests, Dr. Justine Winkies and Joni Brenner from the History of Art Department in the Witt School of Arts, and Professor Jonah Schwanier from the Witt's Evolutionary Sciences Institute. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, the University of the Witt-Wadestrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosevier and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>